Wondery Plus subscribers can binge new seasons of American Scandal early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's July 28, 1978. A low-riding Buick heads slowly through a working-class neighborhood in Pittsburgh. The day is hot and the air is thick and humid. The Buick turns a corner, past a red brick building, and another car, a rusted-up Chevy, follows close behind. Behind the wheel of that Chevy, Henry Hill bites his lip and shakes his head. He looks out at the car's dented hood and listens as the engine rattles, quietly cursing himself. He thinks about how everything has gone so wrong these last few years. Hill is 34 years old. He has dark eyes, a bulbous nose, and a thick New York accent. He got out of prison just two days ago after serving eight years on charges of extortion. But it's not the only crime he's ever committed. Hill has a full resume, including larceny, loan sharking, truck hijacking, and assault. But despite his time in prison, Hill can't shake the old habit. He has a taste for money. He intends to get more of it and fast. That's why right now he's following behind that Buick. The driver of the Buick is Pittsburgh mobster Paul Maisie. Hill and Maisie first met in prison. They made a good team, selling smuggled goods to fellow inmates. But now that they're on the outside, both men are desperate for bigger scores. Their plan is to run heroin and cocaine between Pittsburgh and New York. And today, Hill is here to pick up the first shipment. Hill sees Maisie pull up in front of a rundown duplex. He parks the Chevy, grabs an empty duffel bag. The two then head up a walkway toward Maisie's home. They reach the door, and that's when Maisie stops and turns to Hill. Hey, Henry, there's a friend of mine I want you to meet. He's, he's inside, but he brought over some whiskey with him. Hill squints at his friend. I thought this deal was just you and me. Oh, it is, it is. He's got a separate thing. But look, you want money, right? Well, he's got a possible score. He wants to pitch you. Hill pauses as a warm anger begins seeping up through his shoulders. This was not part of the plan. All he wants to do is start moving drugs to quickly make some real money. But right now, as he looks at Maisie, he realizes he has no choice. Maisie set up the drug deal. So for now, Hill has to at least listen to this other guy. They step into Maisie's living room, and there, Hill glimpses several blocks of brown and white powder wrapped up and lying on a coffee table. Before Hill can take another step, though, the man Maisie mentions approaches him. He has a black mustache and a thick nose and emerges from the kitchen holding two whiskey highballs. Maisie introduces him as Tony Perla. The men take a seat, and Hill starts loading the blocks of drugs into his duffel bag. He glances up at Perla. So, Tony, I don't have much time, but Paul says you've got a proposition for me? I do, Mr. Hill. It's betting. College basketball. Hill keeps packing up the heroin and cocaine, only half listening. Got an angle on a team that can make you solid coin. But I need help. We need to spread the bets across the country. I, um, hear you have connections with Lucchese's back in New York. Maybe they could help. Hill sighs. The Lucchese's are one of the five New York mafia families, and he does have connections with them. He's half Irish, and so he can't be an actual member of the Italian mob, but he is a trusted associate. Trusted, 
because he doesn't bring the family bad deals. Yeah, listen, Tony, I like to gamble as much as the next guy, but I got to be focused on my business right now. Well, Mr. Hill, what if I told you it was a fix? That the starting players at Boston College want to do business. Hill stops loading the duffel bag, stares at Perla, his eyebrow raised. What if I told you that you can trust them to fix games? In that case, Tony, I'd say let's hear a little more. As Perla explains the scheme, a wide grin spreads across Hill's face. Because right then, he can tell this isn't a normal gambling operation. It's something else. Something unlike he's ever been a part of. This could mean real money. If Tony Perla is right, it should go off without a hitch. American Scandal is sponsored by Audible. A room locked from the inside. A dead body, but no signs of injury or struggle. The deceased, a devoted family man, successful industrialist, and generous philanthropist. Everyone around him seemingly innocent, but hiding a secret past. In four sentences, I've grabbed your attention. And this is the power of classic mysteries and thrillers from Audible. Like Esquire Magazine's number one best mystery novel of all time, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. As an Audible member, you can choose one title every month to keep forever from the entire catalog of classics, bestsellers, new releases, and Audible originals, ready for listening whenever, wherever on the Audible app. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. That's audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Scandal. When it comes to college sports, the numbers are big. About 460,000 college students play every year in NCAA sports. They compete in everything from football to baseball to rugby, and the money is big too. In 2018, NCAA sports generated a staggering $10.3 billion in revenue. That year, the highest paid coach in college football made over $8.3 million. Still, over the years, student-athletes have largely gone unpaid, though some have tried to change that. These college athletes have attempted to make some money, even if it meant breaking the NCAA rules or the law. That's what happened in 1978, when a group of basketball players at Boston College got involved with mobsters from New York. In this three-part series, we'll look at how promising young athletes became entangled with the criminal underworld, and what happened when brutal mobsters trusted a group of college students with their fortunes. This is episode one, Against the Odds. 
It's early September 1978. About two months have passed since Henry Hill got out of prison. Today, he sits in Paul Maisie's living room, wearing a moss-green leisure suit and leaning over a rickety coffee table where he divides out lines of cocaine. Over the last two months, Hill has been shuttling between Pittsburgh and New York. In Pittsburgh, he loads up on large quantities of heroin and cocaine. He then brings the drugs to New York and hands them off to dealers. So far, the arrangement has been lucrative. But today, Hill is back in Pittsburgh for a different reason. He's here to meet someone named Rick Kuhn. Kuhn isn't involved in the drug trade. He's a student at Boston College and plays basketball for the college team, the Eagles. Hill snorts two short lines of cocaine, leans back in a leather armchair. He silently assesses the huge man sitting across from him. Kuhn is six foot five and weighs an easy 220, with a thick mustache and dark feathered hair. Hill does one more line of cocaine and looks up at Kuhn. So, Rick, Tony Perla tells me you went to high school with his little brother, says you were some kind of star athlete. Kuhn shrugs his shoulders and stays silent. Hill stares at him. The boy may be huge in body, but Hill's not so sure he's big in mind. Must be nice to play for Boston College. Too bad they're not paying for your talents. Kuhn sits up, looking more focused than before, as Hill continues. Rick, you deserve to be rewarded, and that's where I can help. All we want is some assistance with the scoreboard. Tony said you're up for that. Kuhn gives a short nod. Good. Must be clear, we're not asking you to throw games or anything. I don't bet on who wins or who loses. I bet on what's called the spread. Now, the spread, that means... That means you bet on how many points we win or lose by. Ah, smart kid. Tell me what you know about spreads. Kuhn's eyes wander for a moment, and then he looks back at Hill. Well... Let's say the Eagles are favored to win by 10 points. That means the spread is 10. You could place a bet on the opponent, and if we make sure to beat them by less than 10, you still win the bet. We still win the game, but we're winning by less points. That's something I can make happen. Rick, you're almost right. What's different is, it's not that I win, it's that we win. And we get paid, my friend. Now, you got any other players in this with you? Well, of course. Well, that makes me very happy. A month later, in mid-October 1978, on the campus of Boston College, the Robert Center gym echoes with the sound of shoes squeaking on the hardwood floor. Today, the Boston College Eagles are wrapping up their first basketball practice of the season. The players take their final shots, and Rick Kuhn sits alone on a courtside bleacher, lacing up his shoes. These last few weeks, Kuhn has been thinking long and hard about his meeting with Henry Hill. And every time he does, his heart beats fast with anticipation. He desperately wants to make some money to get back to how things used to be. Years ago, Kuhn competed in a different sport. He was a baseball star and even played in the minor leagues. Kuhn saw just how sweet life could be as a well-paid professional athlete. But then his fortunes took a turn. Kuhn struggled with a shoulder injury and soon had to give up baseball. His dreams were dead, he thought, but then he got a second chance. He landed a spot on the Boston College basketball team. He was playing competitive sports once again, but this time, he wasn't getting paid. The gambling scheme could change that, but a knot quickly forms in Kuhn's stomach. Because in spite of what he told Henry Hill, Kuhn hasn't actually enlisted any other players. And he needs at least one other player to join him. But the question is, who? He studies his teammates as they head for the exit. To the 24-year-old Kuhn, these guys seem like they're still in high school. 
They're not serious about taking a risk, even one to make some real money. Kuhn sighs and gazes up at the rafters, searching for ideas. When he looks back at the court, something clicks. As if on cue, his friend Jim Sweeney walked out of the locker room. Sweeney is the Eagles' point guard and co-captain, as well as an A student. He has an energetic balance and a natural smile. Everything about Sweeney says that he's an honest, hardworking guy. But as Kuhn watches him, he thinks there's more to this golden boy than meets the eye. Sweeney regularly asks Kuhn about his time playing baseball in the minor leagues, about living the good life. Kuhn gets to his feet and hurries to catch up to Sweeney. He greets him with an unassuming smile and asks whether he had a minute to talk. Moments later, Kuhn and Sweeney step outside the Roberts Center. They're met with a crisp fall wind which rustles the leaves of the campus maples. As they walk away from the gym, Kuhn explains the full plan. Sweeney stops, checks to make sure they're out of earshot, and then demands to know, did Kuhn just ask him to cheat? So Sweeney repeats the plan again and promises him it's not technically cheating. It's just shaving off a few points here and there. It's harmless, and it'll make a buck. Sweeney crosses his arms and tells Kuhn it sounds like cheating to him, and for a moment, both remain silent. Finally, Kuhn laughs and claps Sweeney on the shoulder. He says to drop it. It was just a joke anyway, but Sweeney eyes him warily. Kuhn gives him another pat and says they should head to class. As they walk away, Kuhn remains quiet, thinking to himself, Jim Sweeney didn't say yes, but then again, he didn't say no. It's later that same week, Henry Hill winds his way through the busy foot traffic in Queens, New York City. He stops at a dimly lit bar known as Robert's Lounge. Hill turns around and gestures to Paul Maisie and Tony Perla, who follow behind him. This is it, he tells them. Inside, a man sits on a corner stool, noodling on his guitar while laughing with a couple guys with thick necks. Hill waves to them. One of them stands and, without saying a word, escorts the trio to the back of the bar. From there, they head down a narrow set of stairs. As they descend, Hill keeps looking back at Tony Perla, who's looking pale. He's nervous, and that makes Hill nervous, too. They're here today because Hill is trying to sell the betting scheme to powerful mobster Jimmy Burke. The trio is about to meet with Burke, and when they do, Perla will explain the plan. If Burke likes what he hears, he'll come on board, and he'll bring with him a large national network of sports betting bookies. Hill knows that this is the key for the whole operation. For the scheme to work, they'll have to spread the bets around the country. They'll place a large number of small bets on Boston College's basketball team, and all those small wins will add up to serious money. But because the bets will be spread far and wide, they won't attract too much attention from other gamblers. Hill reaches the basement level and sees Burke seated at a table. He's reading the newspaper and cracking open a couple of hard-boiled eggs. Burke is 50. With his reading glasses and old polo shirt, he doesn't exactly look like a high-level member of the Mafia or a man with a reputation for extreme violence. Burke looks up from his paper. He sees Hill and smiles. The two have known each other for 25 years, and Burke treats Hill like a nephew. Hill introduces Burke to the two other men and then leaves Tony Perla with Burke so the two of them can talk. Meanwhile, he joins Maisie and two of Burke's men in the corner for a game of bocce. But even as Hill plays, he keeps one eye on Burke and Perla's conversation. Burke listens, nods, asks questions, nods again. Finally, he motions at Hill to join them at the table. 
Bert takes a sip of his drink and says he's interested in the betting scheme. But first, he wants Hill to go to Boston and meet all of the players involved, not just Kuhn. He needs personal assurances that all of Kuhn's partners are up to the task. Hill smiles and nods, but he feels his chest tighten as he realizes he doesn't know with any certainty that Kuhn has gotten other players involved. It's time to find out. It's early November, less than a month before the start of the Eagles basketball season. Jim Sweeney follows Rick Kuhn down a hallway in a Hilton hotel. Kuhn stops at a certain room and knocks on the door. Sweeney feels a tingle of excitement. After practice, Kuhn said that he had friends in town, big fans of Boston College. They wanted to pick up the dinner tab for the two players and talk a little basketball. Sweeney agreed immediately. He's a cash-strapped college student, so he wasn't about to turn down a free meal. The hotel room door swings open. A man with a black mustache and a thick nose introduces himself to Sweeney. He says his name is Tony Perla. They shake hands, and Perla ushers them inside. As Sweeney follows Kuhn into the room, he sees two squat leather club chairs. A man with a wiry build is perched on one of them. Kuhn introduces the man to Sweeney as Henry Hill. Hill nods, rubbing both hands back and forth over the armrests. Right away, something about Hill makes Sweeney nervous. There's an awkward silence. Sweeney asks if they'll be heading to the restaurant soon, but no one answers. Instead, Kuhn mumbles something about needing to make a phone call. Then he exits the room with Perla, leaving Sweeney alone with Hill. Sweeney's mouth goes dry. Something feels very wrong about this. Finally, Hill begins talking. He peppers Sweeney with questions, asking about his role on the team and which game Sweeney is certain they'll win. Sweeney answers the questions one by one, and then Hill stands. He steps in front of Sweeney, forcing him to look up. One more question, Hill says. Has Rick Kuhn talked to you about shaving points? Sweeney feels his legs go weak. It's now clear. Kuhn, his friend and teammate, has set him up. Sweeney answers that yes, Kuhn has mentioned something of the sort. Hill continues and says that smart players can finesse a score. They can miss a shot here, overthrow a pass there, and when they're smart, they can rake in a lot of money. And with money like that, Hill says, Sweeney could give Mora some gold bracelets. Sweeney's mouth hangs open in shock. This guy somehow knows his girlfriend's name. Hill fixes Sweeney with a steely gaze. A bead of sweat drips down Sweeney's forehead. He gets the picture, nods his head. Hill then picks up a room service menu and hands it to Sweeney. He asks them if he's ready to order dinner. Sweeney holds the menu in his shaking hands. He swallows hard. Yes, he says he's ready to order. Hill then asks Sweeney if he's going to participate in their fix. Sweeney hesitates, his thoughts pinballing. He searches for some excuse, but then he looks into Hill's intense, furious eyes. They don't leave him much choice. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? 
Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. It's early evening on December 6th, 1978. Tonight, the Boston College Eagles are playing the Providence College Friars in the first game of the season. Inside the Roberts Center, the crowd is at capacity and the gym hums with pregame chatter. The Eagles are running through their warm-ups on the court, but Rick Kuhn doesn't have his eye on the hoop. Instead, he's trailing Jim Sweeney, trying to get him apart from the others. He needs to remind Sweeney of the spread on tonight's game and how they'll need to manipulate the final score. He also needs to see in Sweeney's eyes that he's really on board. Tony Perla had called Kuhn the day before, saying that Las Vegas had set the betting line at nine points. Burke and his associates would place huge amounts of money on the game, betting that Providence would lose, but they would lose by less than nine points. Kuhn needed to make sure that happened. He needed to guarantee that Boston would win by eight points or less. As the team keeps warming up, a ball bounces off the rim. Sweeney goes after it, and Kuhn follows. Kuhn repeats what he told Sweeney in the locker room. They have to win by less than nine. Sweeney hisses, tells him to keep quiet, that he's reminded him a million times already. He gets it. Kuhn can hear the anger in his friend's voice. Sweeney has been on edge ever since that night at the hotel with Henry Hill. Sweeney turns away with a scowl on his face. He takes a shot, which drains through the hoop with a swish. Then, without looking back at Kuhn, he runs and grabs the ball. Kuhn watches Sweeney, his pulse quickening. But before he can say another word, the referee blows the whistle. The game's about to start. After opening tip-off, the Eagles come out of the gate hot, pressuring the Friars into 16 turnovers in the first half. Boston goes on to take a 12-point lead by halftime. Kuhn's legs feel shaky, not just because he's been running all night. He's not sure he can control the game, or Sweeney, and if he doesn't slow the team, he's going to be in big trouble. Minutes later, the second half is about to resume. Kuhn stands on the sidelines with his teammates. They looked electric out there, and of course, winning feels good, but it's time to let Providence start catching up. Kuhn tries to catch Sweeney's eye to communicate the message, but Sweeney, the Eagles' co-captain, just stares intently at their coach. Kuhn grits his teeth. Now or never for Sweeney. The whistle blows, and the Eagles head back onto the court for the second half of the game. Kuhn plays center, and when he grabs a rebound, he sends the ball to Sweeney. To his great relief, the point guard starts to slow the pace down, and soon both Kuhn and Sweeney miss several easy baskets. Providence comes climbing back. Coming into the final minutes of the game, Boston College is now ahead by eight. They're just within the nine-point margin. With less than four minutes remaining, Kuhn discreetly signals to Sweeney. He wants him to slow the game down even more and play out the clock. 
Boston must stop scoring. Sweeney dribbles the ball down court, then sends a pass to Ernie Cobb. Cobb is the Eagles' shooting guard, the team's star player. Cobb faces three defenders, but still manages to release a jump shot. It's a beautiful shot that puts the Eagles even further ahead. But Providence misses their next shot. And despite Kuhn's message, Sweeney leads a charge back up the court. He weaves in and out of the defenders and then launches a perfect jump shot from about 10 feet out. The game is now completely out of Kuhn's control. His legs and arms go weak and he feels like he might throw up. Boston's crowd has risen to a fever pitch. Kuhn pulls up alongside Sweeney, barking in his ear. Jim, what the hell are you doing? What's it look like? I'm playing basketball. Get back in position. With that, Sweeney steals the ball from a wide-eyed Providence player. He spins and sends a pass rocketing to Boston star Ernie Cobb. Cobb pivots and sinks a left-handed layup. Kuhn glares at Sweeney. Jim, are you out of your mind? If coach sees me messing up, I'm out of the game. Is that what you want? Now leave me alone. I've already done plenty. Sweeney runs off, leaving Kuhn to watch a nightmare unfold around him. Cobb sinks yet another one. The crowd erupts in cheers again, and it goes on. Until at the sound of the final buzzer, Kuhn stands motionless, wiping sweat from his forehead and staring blankly at the scoreboard. Boston College has won the game 83-64. It's a 19-point victory and a loss for the Mafia, who is counting on Kuhn to keep the win under nine points. It's 6 a.m. the next morning in New York City. Inside his apartment, Henry Hill is lying on his couch, draped in the suit he wore last night. One shoe is missing, and so is his shirt, though oddly he's still wearing a tie. Telephone rings, shattering the silence. Hill groans. He knows it's Jimmy Burke. With each ring, Hill is reminded of last night's disaster. The Boston College game went completely off the rails, and when the game ended, he couldn't drink enough to forget it. The baskets those kids kept making, the fast breaks, the layups, the simple inability to follow the damn plan. Hill sighs. Luckily, he assumed the scheme might have a rough start, so he didn't bet much on the game. But he's not going to tell Coon and Sweeney that. Those kids should fear for their lives. Hill sits up with a groan. He crawls over to the coffee table and fumbles for the telephone receiver. Sure enough, it is Jimmy Burke. And sure enough, he's furious. Burke yells into the phone, asking why Hill took so long to pick up. He demands to know what happened last night. Didn't these kids get the message? Burke's tirade goes on and on. But Hill knows Burke. He can tell the mobster's fury is just that and nothing more. Burke didn't bet much on the game either. But what Burke really wants is to get the plan repaired so he can start betting large. He wants the next game to deliver. Hill drags the phone down onto the floor and lies on his back, his arms covering his eyes. In spite of his throbbing hangover, he's able to lay out a plan for Burke, a solution that will calm him down. He explains that the problem is not their guys, Coon and Sweeney. The problem is the team's star, Ernie Cobb. That guy has a hot hand. Last night, he scored 25 points. Hill tells Burke there's only one thing to do. They need to recruit Cobb and make him a part of the fix. And there's good news, he says. It just so happens that Ernie Cobb and Rick Coon are longtime friends, so they shouldn't have any trouble getting the star shooting guard to agree. Hill promises 
you'll get it all set for the upcoming Harvard game, and from there, everyone can turn a profit. Burke agrees to the plan, and Hill hangs up. Still lying on the ground, he exhales deeply and rubs his eyes. He's relieved that he was able to calm down Burke, but now he's got another problem to solve. Because what he told Burke isn't exactly the truth. Far from it. He doesn't know if Cobb and Kuhn even like each other. He prays that they do, because otherwise, he's not sure how he'll bring Cobb into the fold. And if Burke bets large and the scheme goes belly up again, Hill won't just get an angry phone call. No one crosses Jimmy Burke without consequences, not even longtime friends. So Hill comes up with another plan. As soon as his hangover clears, he'll call Tony Perla and instill him with a heavy dose of fear. It'll now be his job to recruit Ernie Cobb. It's 11 p.m. on December 10th, four days after Boston College's game against Providence. Inside his cramped apartment, Ernie Cobb can hear the wail of the wind. There's still a draft of cold winter air coming through the cheap glass of the kitchen windows. But right now, Cobb is feeling warm, strong. He's doing one of the things he loves best. He's talking to one of his fans about basketball. With his pressed bell-bottoms and tight-trimmed afro, Cobb knows he looks like a winner. The gleaming trophies around him serve as reminders that the 5'11 shooting guard has a promising future. Cobb hoists a heavy trophy. He carefully passes it across the kitchen table to a bearded young man wearing a silk shirt with a tiger on the front. The man's name is Rocco Perla, and today Rick Kuhn brought him over to the apartment so they could all hang out and watch TV together. Kuhn said the two were friends from high school, but he left Rocco and Cobb in the kitchen to talk while Kuhn watches a show with Cobb's girlfriend in the living room. Rocco's admiring the trophy as Cobb explains that it was awarded to him for being the top scorer at Stanford High School in Connecticut. Cobb then hands Rocco another trophy. He explained that this one's for being Boston College's top scorer last year. Rocco gives a low whistle of appreciation, and Cobb smiles. Though Rocco is about the same age as Kuhn, he strikes Cobb as older, more worldly. Cobb continues, telling Rocco that he's on course to be the greatest single scorer in Boston College history. Every NBA scout watching him play this season should leave with the name Ernie Cobb burned into their brain. Rocco laughs and says that with basketball skills that strong, he wouldn't be surprised if the scouts came banging down his door. Cobb, feeling flattered, grins. The two sit in silence for a moment, and then Rocco sets down the trophy. He looks at Cobb. Would he mind answering a few questions about the team? Cobb agrees without hesitating. Rocco says he's thinking of betting on the upcoming game between Boston College and Harvard. Cobb grins and says that's not a bad idea. But, Rocco adds, what if the Eagles didn't blow past the spread? What if Cobb kept the score down just a little? Nothing that would affect his stats or his chance of making the pros. And if he did, he could make some money, maybe even a lot of it. Cobb pauses, stares at the bearded young man. Now that Rocco's affable grin has vanished, the tiger on his shirt looks menacing. Cobb picks up one of the trophies, turns it slowly in his hand. He's always thought of himself as an honest, tough competitor. Pro basketball was always part of his plan, along with a fat paycheck. But he also knows it may be a while before he starts earning real money. This could offer an easy and quick shortcut. Cobb has a decision to make, one that could change the rest of his life. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's December 13th, 1978. Rick Kuhn is walking slowly down a set of stairs, down into the men's locker room in the Roberts Center. He stops on one of the stairs, just outside the locker room. He can hear the rustling of clothes and the clank of a locker closing shut. Kuhn twists his hands. He just finished practice with the team, and normally he'd be worn out and ready to get showered and get home. But today, he feels wired with anxiety. Kuhn steps into the locker room. Only one person remains. Jim Sweeney. He's changing into a white shirt and khakis, and after Kuhn makes sure they're alone, he takes a seat on the bench. Sweeney glances at Kuhn with a solemn look on his face, then he turns back around silently and continues to get dressed. For days, the two have barely spoken to each other, but right now, Kuhn wants to change that. He wants to make sure that Sweeney hasn't lost his commitment to the scheme. The Harvard game's in three days. You ready? Sweeney turns, threading a belt through the loops of his pants. Yeah, sure. It'll be an easy win. Kuhn exhales, runs a hand through his hair. That's not what I mean, Jim. I mean, are you ready? We'll probably be favored by a lot. Betting line is going to be high. This time we have to keep the points down. For real, man. Sweeney scowls, pulls on his sweater. He zips up his bag and starts to leave. Jim, you cannot act crazy again. Those guys lost big money. Now they're looking to make it back. Through us. Through you, you mean. I didn't ask to be a part of this. Coon's eyes narrow. No, you agreed, man. If you didn't want to do it, you should have said so. I agreed? That crazy thug knew my girlfriend's name. He had violence in his eyes, man. <sighs> Thanks for looking out for me, Rick. Jim, listen, I am looking out for you. I'm giving you the chance to make some serious cash, but you need to be smart. That guy Hill, the one with violence in his eyes... He called me. He said we can get our act together or we can find out how hard it is to play basketball with a broken arm. Look, this time they're coming to Boston. They're going to watch us. This is crazy, man. I just want to play ball. Exactly. Play ball. Play ball by their rules. We can make the money and still beat Harvard. Sweeney takes a long, deep breath. His natural smile and charisma are gone. He looks scared and tortured. Kuhn thinks he never should have dragged Sweeney into this. He's too naive a kid. Too nice. Seeing him scared like this, Kuhn is filled with remorse. But he also knows that right now it's too late to back out. So, Jim, what do you say? Sure. It's December 16th, 1978. Today is game day at the Boston Garden with Boston College facing Harvard. The mood at the crowded arena is raucous, and the stands are awash in maroon, gold, and white, the colors of Boston College. Up in the stands, Henry Hill and Paul Maisie follow a young woman named Barbara Reed as she leads them through the humming crowd. Normally, Hill would be focused on Reed's dark mane of hair and the occasional flash of leg, but tonight he feels tense. Reed is Rick Kuhn's girlfriend. Kuhn had asked her to sit with his friends, Hill and Maisie, and have some fun while watching the game. But Hill isn't here for fun. He only cares whether Kuhn and his teammate Sweeney will come through and shave off some points. 
Hill also hopes that the newest addition to the scheme, Ernie Cobb, will play along as well. Because this time, real money is on the game. Hill himself wagered a sizable portion of his profits from running drugs. This game should be a safe bet. The line is a whopping 12. It should be easy for the Boston College players to keep the point difference below that, at least in theory. Hill also knows that Jimmy Burke, his friend and powerful mobster, has also bet on this game. And if the scheme doesn't work out and Burke loses his money, there could be real problems this time. Everything has to go according to plan. Barbara Reed stops at three empty seats in the Boston section. She slides in and sits down. Maisie takes a seat next to her, but Hill decides he's not going to sit and watch. He needs to send a message. He remains standing and spots Rick Kuhn running drills next to Jim Sweeney down on the court. Hill stares at them, watching fiercely, waiting for the players to see him. Finally, Kuhn looks up. He nudges Sweeney, and the two lock eyes with Hill. He holds their gaze, and with his jaws clenched tight, points to the pockets of his pants. It's an old mafia gesture. It signals the two choices they have, money or misery, profit or pain. Kuhn pauses, and then Hill sees him nod. It gives him a small surge of relief. Kuhn is still in. Now hopefully Sweeney won't play hero again. Feeling satisfied, Hill sits down and the game gets underway. Following tip-off, Boston College looks like a juggernaut compared to Harvard. Soon the scoreboard reads Boston College 9, Harvard 0. Hill cracks his knuckles. The game just started, and already he's full of nerves. The Eagles are well on their way to a rout, and will no doubt blow past the 12-point spread. But then, the game turns around. Harvard begins to rally, and soon they actually take the lead. Hill lets out an excited cheer, and Kuhn's girlfriend, Barbara, turns and stares in confusion. In the second half, things start looking even brighter for Henry Hill. Boston throws away passes. The shots are wide. Even Ernie Cobb is clanking shots at the side of the rim. Hill can't help but clap at each miss. But Sweeney isn't helping. He sinks multiple shots, and Hill frowns. He'll need to deal with that kid later. But Kuhn, Kuhn is a godsend. He launches one pass so wide the ball bounces off the Harvard bench and sails into the stands. It's all Hill and Maisie can do to hold themselves together. The shoulders shake with silent laughter. Barbara Reed scowls at them, as do the surrounding Boston College fans. But soon the final buzzer sounds. Boston College 86, Harvard 83. Hill pumps his fists in excitement and gives a little dance in his seat. What a wonderful, terrible team, he thinks. It's an hour after the game against Harvard. The fans have emptied out of Boston Garden, and only a few cleaning staff remain behind. In a back hallway, Barbara Reed leans against the wall, watching her boyfriend, Rick Kuhn. He's standing away from her at the far end of the hall, talking to those two creeps, Hill and Maisie. Reed frowns. The Rick she knows wouldn't be friends with guys like that. And there's one other thing that Reed doesn't understand. Why is Rick in such a good mood after such a pathetic performance? All he ever talks about is how much he wants to be a winner. Something's off, thinks Reed, because it's not only tonight. For the past month, Kuhn has been pacing around their shared apartment, on edge. He's been quick to snap at her, even after the Eagles' big win against Providence. Especially that night. Reed shakes her head. Men truly are some other species. Kuhn waves goodbye to the two men, then turns back toward Reed, holding an envelope. He takes a quick look at the contents, then tucks it under his arm. Reed is shocked. 
Even at a distance, she can see it's a stack of money. A lot of money, judging by how fat the envelope is. Kuhn reaches Reed and leans down for a kiss, but she stops him cold. Why did those two thugs just pay you a bunch of money, she asks. Kuhn gives her a wounded look, and he tells her it's just a small bet, nothing to worry about. Reed presses him again, but he remains evasive. So she decides to let it go for the moment. Boston still won the game, and there's bound to be a party tonight. But even as she takes Kuhn's hand, Barbara Reed can tell this isn't the end of the story. It's December 18, 1978, and two days after the Harvard game, Boston College is on its winter break, and campus is eerily quiet. But for the Eagles basketball team, it's business as usual. Rick Kuhn enters the locker room after the team's evening practice. He once again finds Jim Sweeney, alone, getting dressed. Kuhn slides an envelope from his coat pocket, counts out five crisp hundred-dollar bills. He holds them out to Sweeney with a smile, tells him it's just a little something from Henry Hill. Kuhn knows the gambler wasn't thrilled with Sweeney's performance, but he's decided to use a carrot rather than a stick. The problem is, Sweeney isn't biting. He tells Kuhn that he doesn't want to be involved anymore. Those guys won their bet. Now he wants out. Kuhn shakes his head. He tells Sweeney that that's just not possible. Doesn't work that way with the mob. Kuhn slowly crumples the bills and pushes them into Sweeney's chest. But Sweeney doesn't take them, letting them instead fall to the floor. Kuhn can feel his rage rising. No matter how Sweeney feels about the scheme, it's far too late to back out, because if he does, both of them could be in danger. Kuhn looks Sweeney in the eye and issues a warning. You're in the fix now, he says, whether you like it or not. Kuhn then turns and walks away. When he reaches the stairwell, he looks back. Jim Sweeney is gone, but so too is the money. Next on American Scandal, pressure mounts as the mafia begins pouring money into the betting scheme. But as the players begin to crack and mobsters start disappearing, the FBI launches its pursuit. From Wondery, this is episode one of the Boston College Gambling Scheme for American Scandal. A quick note about our reenactments. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said, but those scenes are dramatizations based on historical research. If you'd like to learn more about the Boston College Gambling Scheme, we recommend Fixed by David Porter and The Lufthansa Heist by Daniel Simone. American Scandal is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. This episode is written by Charles Olivier. Edited by Christina Malsberger. Produced by Gabe Riven. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. While we take a quick break, I want to tell you about an older season of American Scandal that covered one of the most controversial events in American history. In the winter of 1993, a deadly standoff unfolded at Mount Carmel Center in Waco, Texas, between federal forces and a religious group known as the Branch Davidians. At this Waco siege, power struggles and personal vendettas collided in a battle for control even as tensions escalated, ultimately leading to the longest firefight in the history of American law enforcement with massive bloodshed on both sides. This deadly conflict also raised important questions about the government's use of force and, more broadly, about the limits of civil liberties in America. You can find this episode by following American Scandal and scrolling back a little to the Waco season or by searching American Scandal Waco 
That's American Scandal WACO, wherever you listen to podcasts.